This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Still Patrick Maguire in for Matt Chorley. Today, we're going down under and asking in the week that The Office is remade for Australians, is Britain embarked on its own very long remake of Australian politics? What are the influences we're getting from Down Under? We've got an all-star panel we're going to discuss that with. But first, it's time for the columnists. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, it's a Thursday, so I'm joined by Manveen Rana, presenter of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Morning, Manveen. Hello. You're joining us from Ireland, no I less. Am. I'm, I am. I'm in, in sunny, very sunny Listowel in County Kerry this morning. Ah, I'm very jealous. I'm very jealous. And <laughs> in an altogether less sunny Times Radio studio, it's Matthew Paris. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. Uh, great to have you both. Let's uh, get straight into the big political story of the morning. Boris Johnson says he's handed over his WhatsApps to Cabinet. The great will they, won't they? Now it's over to the Cabinet Office to decide uh, whether they hand them over to the COVID inquiry. Matthew, what do you make of all this? Well, well I've come in th- this morning not to explain anything, but to have something explained to me. If he's got all these WhatsApps and has told the Cabinet Office they can have them, why have the Cabinet Office said that they haven't got them? Why didn't he hand them over quite a while ago? Is he in the position to delete WhatsApps that uh, he doesn't doesn't mm. want them to have? There's something a bit mysterious about this whole story. And as ever with Boris Johnson, there is a theatrical element to it. You know, he's left it to yes. the 11th hour to say to the Cabinet Office, you can have my WhatsApps and brief that very publicly to everybody, which puts Rishi Sunak in a tricky position. Which is his aim. He's yes, making exactly. this chief. Exactly. Do you agree, Manveen? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, 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 you know, like Matthew, I have a lot of questions about this. I also can't understand why the cabinet office is suddenly the arbiter of, of what is unambiguously irrelevant to the inquiry rather than the person running the inquiry. Um, it seems bizarre that they're not being given complete access. Um, and I think it is interesting, you know, Boris Johnson's comments does it absolutely putting the pressure much more on Rishi Sunak now. Um, and I think, you know, that's something we haven't talked about very much, but when COVID happened, you know, uh, the Insight team at the Sunday Times, for example, um, had a, a several investigations where they sort of revealed that actually quite often 
Rishi Sunak was the one in the room who was um, trying to stop a second lockdown or, you know, and, and I've interviewed the families of, of people who died during that autumn when we didn't lock down soon enough, who, who would hold him responsible for it. And I, I think there probably is a bit of nervousness um, around number 10 about this inquiry and how it plays out, because so much of Rishi Sunak's sort of um, campaign for the next election is going to be about his competence. So you don't really want something which isn't, you know, immediately questioning that. I mean, this, this inquiry will drag on for, for years, I suspect. But at every stage, there's going to be a fear that if you hand over an awful lot of evidence, it'll start to leak. Do you think, Matthew, they've broken the number one rule of public inquiries, which is don't call one whose answer you're not already sure of? Yes, I, um, <clears throat> I think they have. Uh, on the other hand, I'm um, one of the reasons I uh, like and admire Rishi Sunak is the way he handled the COVID inquiry. I think it's very well known that he thought we were locking down a bit mm. too hard and he, he pushed back against it. And I, I support that. And if that comes out of the evidence, so much the better. But I, I am still mystified by the, the process by which these WhatsApps, what, why would they ever have been in the belonging to the, um, in, in the care of, of, of the, the cabinet office? And I am also. A little bit. I, I, I agree with Manveen. I think the Cabinet Office are on to a loser uh, here. If you, if you have an inquiry and give it powers to require evidence, you can't then t tell uh, whoever's conducting the inquiry what they can and can't require. But in the end, I wrote a notebook about this on the Times, in the Times this week. In the end, what ministers, and not just ministers, but even you and me, Patrick and Manveen, are going to conclude is never commit anything uh, electronically Indeed. or in writing that, that could later appear in the Daily Mail. I, you know, I suggested in my Times article that ministers should meet in public lavatories. With the taps uh, running. With, with the taps running, like in a <laughs> Moscow spy drama. Well, I was going to say, you know, when you were working in politics, Matthew, you were never at risk of committing, apart from, say, scribbled notes that may or may not have, you know, ended up in National Archives under 30-year rules or whatever, but you had these so this sort of intermediate level of political speech that's between formal decision-making and totally casual. Yes. That's sort of relevant to decision-making, but it isn't a formal process. You would have had those discussions in corridors and in pubs or wherever, and, you know, we can't obviously, we obviously can't, FOI or submit to a public inquiry some, as you wrote, deniable speech you had face to face with someone. Yeah, and that, that was always the safest way to do things, probably always has been through history. On the other hand, I could write handwritten notes, confident uh, that they, they were the property of myself and the person to whom I had written them. There would never have been any thought that any of my correspondence uh, could be required by anybody. We didn't have select committees the, uh, in those days with these powers, and we, we weren't setting up inquiries all the kind. I just think that the future historians are going to find it difficult to know what was really going on, mm. because anything that's really going on, people are not going to write down anymore. Indeed, it depends on their candor or... Or, or lack of it when mm. they speak to historians or indeed don't. Do you agree, Manveen? You know, are you careful about what you write down? Um, I'm not so much, but then I, as a journalist, I kind of hope I don't have to be. Um, but for politicians, I mean, I think we've, we have seen in recent years just this sort of sense of government by WhatsApp. You know, we're constantly getting leaked bits of the, the Tory MP WhatsApp group. And it seems surprising that so many people are still committing all of this to what has essentially become quite a public forum. Yeah, there's a slight performative element to that, I think, a lot mm. of the... And very selective leaks as well. You know, I don't think anybody yeah. writes an intemperate message in the Tory WhatsApp group 
in the and, and is shocked to find it on the Twitter of a lobby journalist within within half an hour or so. Let's stick with Tory MPs though. Fifty of them and four former cabinet ministers among them have said this morning they want to abolish inheritance tax altogether. The Tory Growth Group, uh, which allied to uh, Liz Truss, remember her, uh, another former PM making news this morning. Uh, that's the proposal they're making: abolish inheritance tax entirely. Uh, smart politics, Matthew? No, I don't think so. This is Daily Telegraph stuff. Seven um, percent, I think, of of, uh, of deaths result in the payment of inheritance tax, and they are the seven percent of the richest people in the country. And I don't see anything Tory in the idea that people should be able to pass on enormous privilege uh, to their, their offspring or anybody they want to leave it to uh, without any sort of merit. And Tories believe in equal opportunities. A, a child that inherits the whole lot doesn't start with um, equal opportunities, but much greater opportunities. It raises a lot of money. I think it raises, is it 14 billion? But, but the principle, I think, that, that uh, when you die, you do not have an automatic right to give everything to somebody else without the taxman taking a little bit of a cut. I think that's a good principle. Mm. But what, what would you say to... Well, what would Matthew Paris say to Pretty Patel and Nadim Zahawi is an interesting question, anyway. But what would you, what, what would you, what would you say to those who say, uh, you know, like Jacob Rees-Mogg too this morning, saying, "Well, look, this is income that's been taxed twice. It's unfair." Oh, but we're taxed on all kinds of things uh, for which we have all, uh, from incomes mm. on which we have already paid tax. And if you want to establish a principle that any money that you have uh, that has already been paid tax on can't be taxed again, I think you, you're the whole thing coaching horses <laughs> through the inland revenue. Uh, what do you think, Mambi? <clears throat> Yeah, I completely agree with Matthew. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the double taxation argument is just vacuous, really. Um, I mean, you know, some of it will have been taxed before, but, you know, we're taxed with income tax and then we pay VAT. This is very standard, as Matthew said. But um, also an awful lot of this won't have been taxed before. You know, when we look at inheritance tax now, it's not just coming from, you know, accumulated income. For a lot of people, what they're passing on is the wealth that's come from property booms, which they haven't been taxed on until until this point, this is sort of, um, you know, and, and yeah. I think that's kind of the problem. You, you know, you end up in a situation where, it, I mean, this is Liz Truss politics, isn't it? She sort of finds a red meat um, policy and then just takes it a little too far. Um, and, and, you know, with this, what are you going to replace it with? As, as Matthew said, that's 14 billion. This is sort of magic money tree stuff. And you'd have to replace it with something which is either say, a bedroom tax or a wealth tax on people who have big homes, but not necessarily huge incomes. Um, or, you know, you'd have to think about... Do you, do you remember that moment? Um, George Osborne obviously sort of made his reputation yes. saying he was going to change inheritance tax rules, but then he had to row back on it because uh, he realised you then have to pay for social care for, for the elderly. So, you know, there is always this this trade-off. So if you're going to take away inheritance tax altogether, that's fine, but are you going to force the elderly to pay much more of their the social care that they may need and to worry about how long they might live? Uh, or are you going to start taxing them on the number of bedrooms they have in their home? Because you've got to make up the gap somewhere. And that, that is what accumulated wealth, which hasn't actually been taxed yet. It's nonetheless electorally salient, though, because it touches on the great inviolables of British politics, people's families, people's homes and death, uh, which means as much as policy experts might say this is you know, as you said, Manveen, Liz trusts politics and look how that ended. Electorally, it has the potential to be quite powerful. Absolutely does. And uh, as the Times report points out, 
this morning, it, it's the second most unpopular tax, the most unpopular being the BBC licence fee, <laughs> apparently, but it's very unpopular. It used When I was young, it used to be called death duties. Mm. Um, it, it's not called death duties anymore, but that's how people see it, and, and, and they hate it. But I repeat, it only applies to about 7% of the population, most of whom will not have enough to pass on to, to pay any inheritance tax. And uh, I don't see why we, we should be favouring the, the rich at the expense of everybody else. It's a bit of an elephant trap for the Labour Party, nonetheless, Manveen, do you think? I'm, I'm not sure it is. I think, you know, had they gone for a less Liz Truss extreme policy, you know, had they just said we're going to raise the threshold, for example, um, as George Osborne tried before, I think a lot of people would have been quite sympathetic. I think they would have won back wavering Tory voters who were thinking of going to the Lib Dems, maybe. But by saying they're going to scrap it altogether, it's just, I mean, I sort of think it makes it easier for Labour because then, you you know, you immediately question what you're going to replace it with because you I, have to replace it with something. It's more of a problem, perhaps, for the Lib Dems, who are very often the challengers in the in the southern seats. Indeed. Uh, where, yeah. where, 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 where the Tories uh, may, may, may fear Lib Dems breathing down their necks. And I can see a Tory poster saying Lib Dems are going to confiscate your house when you die. Uh, it might have some, some tra- uh, engagement. It might do. You sort of feel like you have to have like a more honest national conversation around this because, you know, we already know that um, in, in, we've, you know, the, the property market, for example, is so skewed at the moment that most people, even who are earning an awful lot of money, won't necessarily be able to buy a, ha- a house without some sort of help from from parents or from inheritance. So, you know, if you mm. cancel inheritance tax, that would only skew the property market even further. It would make it sort of much more uh, unlikely that people w- without that sort of help would be able to would be able to buy a home. And you know, people are aged, are, are living longer. So even people who would be normally be able to pass on that wealth won't for much longer and it's just changing the way um, house buying and, and property owning is happening in this country and I don't think we should do anything that exacerbates that. Well Manveen, the point at which journalists call for an honest national conversation on any policy <laughs> issue is the point at which he's broken beyond repair and uh, probably uh, out of reach for any solution. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, I think listeners agree with you two though. Uh, I've got a few texts here. Let's face it, this one written all in capitals. Uh, let's face it, the Tories will do anything to keep the spores of their innate wealth and privilege, won't they? Uh, let's have fairness for once, please. Uh, John on the text says, you have to pay your way for your whole life, in my view. The state can pick up the social care for pension, uh, but when they die, there should be uh, a lot... Um, uh, a lien on the est- their estate for the amount owing. So um, I think you have uh, some supporters uh, in the um, in the in the audience there, guys. Uh, right, coming up, we're going to be talking about why Spain and the Spanish journalist court reacted like this. It's the news of a July election. Adiós, elecciones. El comunicado al jefe del estado. Adiós. Well, Spain is about to go to the polls this summer in a surprise snap general election. It's the first time the country will ever hold an election in July, and this was the reaction in Spain. Atención. Acabo de mantener eh, un despacho con su majestad el rey. Adiós, elecciones. El comunicado al jefe del estado. Adiós. La decisión de convocar un consejo de ministros Adiós. esta misma tarde Adiós. para disolver las cortes Adiós. y proceder de forma que los comicios se celebrarán el domingo 23 de julio, de acuerdo oh, con los plazos yes. que establece la ley. A classic, classically journalistic anger management uh, response there from uh, the Spanish reporting court. Matthew, you know Spain very well. This is the third time Spaniards have been sent to the poll since 2019, the fifth since 2015. And in July, you know, even if, te- if tempers are flaring, it's going to be even hotter 
out there when people are expected to vote. Ay que calor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think the heat will be the particular thing irritating people. Um, you would expect that in a very hot country, uh, people would not complain all the time about the heat, but it's a very Spanish thing to complain about the heat. Mm. You, you may say, well, why live, why live in Spain? But they, they do. And I... I there will be people who simply won't go to the polls because it's too hot, because this is like, well, I suppose they'll be able to vote in the evening, but a lot of it will take place during what would, at least in Andalusia, be the, the siesta. Mm. Uh, Mark Gingawan is Associate Professor of Political Science at the Open University of Catalonia. He joins us on the line now. Hello, Mark. Hello, good morning. Uh, do you think uh, going to the polls in the middle of the summer is going to deter voters? Okay, so let me let me first start by saying that I, I kind of disagree with, with this opinion. So at the end of the day, I, I believe that the, the journey, the electoral journey, it's, it takes for a long time, right? So it goes from 9 in the morning to 8 uh, p.m. So uh, there will be plenty of time to, to go to, to vote. So uh, I fully agree that uh, the end of July is the... Is the warmest uh, probably even week in the during the during the year, late July, early August. But still, there are many hours in which people uh, people is used to this, right? So uh, everywhere in the in, in the in the country, people is used to these temperatures, and uh, and there are plenty of hours. So I I, I believe that. Uh, the heat is not gonna particularly uh, explain a decreasing turnout uh, because people will will adapt to the circumstances, right? So probably people will not go to to vote in the in the warmest hours mm. if that day happens to be if that day happens to be extremely warm, which is uh, how how hot does it get, Mark? Sorry, how hot is it likely to get in the centre of Spain? And- you know, in the well, middle it's, of the day it's, it's very July. likely it's it's very likely to become extremely hot in the south of Spain as well as then the in the Mediterranean coast. I'm I'm speaking from Barcelona and mm. Barcelona it's, uh, and, and Catalonia particularly and uh, Valencia. Uh, we have been uh, particularly hit by the by the climate change and the increasing temperatures. Uh, last last year we had a terrible uh, summer and uh, it, it became extremely extremely hot. We had many many nights in which the temperature didn't uh, go below 30 degrees uh, Celsius. So it's it's likely to be extremely hot. But even in this case, uh, you can you can normally find a, a moment in which you can go to to, to the polling station. And, and and bear in mind, of course, that the polling stations are normally very very close to mm. to, to one's uh, place of residence, right? So so it doesn't it doesn't take too much time to to walk to the place or perhaps in, in some cases, to, to drive there. And knowing what you know of the Spanish people, Matthew, do you, do you agree with that optimistic take? I think Spanish people listening to this will be saying, ah, but Mark, you're from Catalonia. <laughs> and, uh, OK, you may have had uh, some high temperatures recently, but it's all very well for Catalans to tell people in Extremadura that they can go out in the heat and it's all going to be fine. Catalonia is green and cool most of the time. Well, but, but but you know, um, there are still some some hours in the morning and uh, in the evening that the weather doesn't get that 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 high, and and people, of course, it's it's used. We, we too are facing extremely hot temperatures, and and uh, so I, I believe that uh, moving. Uh, perhaps a bit beyond. I, I believe that what may explain a changing in turnout would be that this is almost a holidays. Uh, this this is this I believe this, it will perhaps impact the, the mm. turnout rates and the likelihood of people uh, voting. But uh, I, I kind of find a bit uh, a bit uh, 
difficult to, to see how hot weather can, can affect a voting turnout. That was Manveen Rana and Matthew Parrish. Remember, you can listen to Manveen on our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times, wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can read Matthew in The Times every week. Just get yourself a Times subscription or pick up a copy of the paper. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. She made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, Do you come from a land down under? Yes, whether it's a love of cricket, penchant for beer, Australia and Britain have plenty in common. Thanks in part to the historic links between the two Commonwealth nations. Australia, of course, Britain's former penal Connolly, uh, colony. But in recent years, there's also been an influx of Australian strategists and advisers making waves in Westminster. Not least election guru Sir Linton Crosby, dubbed the Wizard of Oz, the man behind successive Tory election victories in London and across the UK as a whole. Now, today we're going to be exploring the influence on both major parties from Australian politicians, strategists, and asking whether Britain's electoral and political cultures have gone down under. First, I spoke to James McGrath. He's a senator in Queensland, Australia. He's previously worked with the UK Conservative Party for seven years, including on Boris Johnson's successful 2008 London mayoral campaign, which was run, of course, by Sir Linton Crosby. He explained to me what makes Australian political advisors and strategists so attractive to their UK counterparts. I think the main thing is we can cut through the jungle because we, we, we speak the same language, sort of the same system of government, but there's just this outsider-insider appearance about us that we can walk into a meeting, probably it's because of the accent, I don't know what it is, but we just can cut through the mess and see what needs to happen. 
And because of that connection, because of cricket and all that type of muppetry, there's this sense of brotherhood and sisterhood that it's that ability just to cut through. That's the main thing. And obviously you worked for Boris Johnson on his successful 2008 London mayoral campaign. You're now a senator for the Liberal Party in Queensland. Do the two political cultures of these countries have more in common than that divides them? What are the key differences you've noticed working in in both jurisdictions? Oh, there's, there's a couple of differences. British politics in terms of how you do advertising, because you have a, a cap on, on, on expenditure. We don't have that in Australia in most of our jurisdictions. I, I think the British political culture is a little bit more polite. You don't have the bear pits of, say, the New South Wales State Parliament or the Federal House of Representatives. I mean, you might think the House of Commons gets a bit rough and rowdy, but it's sometimes, a lot of the times, just a, a walk in the park compared to the um, Armageddon that are, are our parliaments in terms of the brutal abuse that goes on. I still think there's an element of class politics sometimes in, in, in British politics. You don't have that in Australia. Uh, they're probably the main differences. But there's so much in common in terms of a, a broad centre-left party, a centre-right party, um, a, a changing policy dynamic, uh, the connections because of, you know, we once were a colony or you know, prison settlement and then we're part of the Commonwealth. We've got that, that sense of connection. So actually what divides us is actually quite minimal. And when you were working for Boris Johnson, all of those things you just said in mind. Did he take a bit of convincing to come round to, you know, the Australian way of doing things? Very famously, Linton Crosby helped run that campaign for him. And he has attained the status of, you know, bogeyman uh, for the left and a nearly mythical strategist on the right. Was Boris Johnson a bit sort of nervous at first at some of these sort of more rough and ready techniques? I, I don't think so. I think the, the, why Australians are appealing to British politicians is because we, we bring that sense of we're not like American Republican strategists for, from a, with a different political system. With the same political system, we have a different accent, but we've got this, this ability to cut through. So with Sir Linton and, and Mark Tex, so you have two of the world's, in my view, um, one of the world's greatest pollsters and one of the world's uh, yeah, best strategists for, for, for the conservative side of politics. So he wasn't nervous. David Cameron wasn't nervous. What it showed is an appreciation by the Conservative Party of, of the need to look at what works elsewhere and bring it into British politics. And what people forget about the British Conservative Party, and I'm a bore for the British Conservative Party over here in Australia, is, is that it is the world's most successful political party. And the reason it's successful is because it looks at what works elsewhere, it maintains its true core beliefs, that it, it, it adapts to a changing society. And uh, whether it's Boris or, 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 or David, they got that with, with Linton and Tex and, you know, my, minor players such as myself and many other young Australians who went over, have gone over and worked for the British Conservative Party. If you dropped an Australian in London now and showed them a, a front page or a party political broadcast from the Conservative Party, they would immediately spot the similarities between the Stop the Boats policy that was implemented by the Liberals in Australia a decade ago by Tony Abbott and his tough stance on migration that helped him secure that victory in 2013 and Rishi Sunak's government. Rishi Sunak is literally giving speeches on lecterns emblazoned with Stop the Boats. You know, there are clear similarities there, aren't there? 
I, I totally, but you go back to the 2005 general election with uh, um, Michael Howard when Linton was running that one. You know, we, we had some keyword strategies there because what Australians can do is communicate. And sometimes we get in trouble for it because we're too blunt and we're too rude. But as that, that's an ability to cut through. Sometimes British politicians will use, you know, 50 words to, to describe an apple when we'll just say, it's a fruit, eat it. And that's why you're seeing that cut through at the moment with Prime Minister Sunak. He understands that when people got so much going on in their lives, they don't have time to listen to uh, a lot of political gooblydook um, being muttered by a bunch of blokes and women in suits. Someone gets up and says, we're going to stop the boats. Uh, you know, we're going to do this. And they go, yep. I can, I can, I agree with that. I accept that, and they move on and go back to watching, you know, EastEnders or, or whatever it is. So it is that it's that ability to communicate and understand that most people don't have a lot of time to sit down and and read the newspapers and do what we're doing and listen to political chats. We are, are a minority, so it's that ability to get the message across to those people who actually don't care about politics. These days, it's less Linton Crosby who has captured the imagination of Westminster than Isaac Levido, who obviously ran mm. the Conservative campaign in 2019 and will run the next Conservative campaign. Did you come across him in years gone by? What do you make of him? Oh, I, I think he's brilliant. Linton will probably yell at me, but I, I, I think he's an improved, better version of Linton. You know, he's uh, Linton 2.0 in terms of someone who's so young, you know, who worked, by the way, on, on our 2019 re-election campaign back here in Australia also. Um you know, he, if he is the future of centre-right politics in Australia and the UK, then we're, we're, we're in pretty safe hands. Like, he's got that rare ability just to see issues and verbalise what needs to be said and written to get that message across. You mentioned the 2019 Australian election. Keir Starmer is looking at the 2022 Australian election and trying to emulate the Labour Party's success do you think uh, he can pull that off? Do you think he can heed the lessons? What are the what are the main lessons he can heed from Anthony Albanese's success? I don't know if I want to give the, the Labor Party um, that much credit. Advice. You're hardly um, an impartial judge. <laughs> no, I, I want him to lose. I think you'll be a terrible prime minister. <laughs> um, uh, so, look, I, I was over in the UK in, in January of this year, actually, on, on a private holiday. And it was really interesting in terms of the, the, the Tory government was really getting it, uh, it, it smacked in terms of what was going on with, with the, the ambulances and the NHS and I think there was a scandal with the Tory party chairman and whatever. And if you looked at the Tory party at that particular snapshot, you would have thought they're doomed. But what is really interesting is that since in the months since then, that Prime Minister Sunak's been able to turn that around. And that's the difference, I think, between... 2022 Australia and when the British election will be held is is that we didn't have time to turn around our government post-COVID. Mm. Uh, that our, our Prime Minister became incredibly unpopular and effectively the 2022 election was a referendum on, on Scott Morrison and it wasn't really an endorsement for, for the Labor Party. The Labor Party won, they got about a third of the vote, which is the lowest vote that any incoming government has had in, in Australian political history. So in the UK, you've got Prime Minister Sunak, who's, who's able to, um, I think, has, has the time to rebuild the brand of, of the Conservative Party following you know, some of the madness last year. And will, will you be back over here at any point helping him do it? 
Well, I'll, I'll be back, you know, hopefully for, for a private holiday, but my constituents in Queensland, I think, would be pretty cranky with me if I was going overseas to help overseas political parties that, I, you know, I, obviously I hope the Tories win, but my job here in Australia is to um, make sure that my, my leader, Peter Dutton, wins the next general election here in Australia, which could be in, in a year's time. What's it like on the other side of the aisle? John McTurnan is a political strategist. He was previously political secretary to Tony Blair, and Communications Director to former Australian Labour Prime Minister Julia Gillard. He joins me now. Morning, John. Morning. Uh, you undertook the opposite journey to that we uh, to the one we often yeah. hear about, which is Australians coming here. You were a Brit going to Australia, having worked at the heart of power, both in, in uh, London and Canberra. What, what are the key differences and similarities you encountered? There's an obvious similarity, which is that... Uh, the federal government and the state governments in Australia have got the Westminster model, they call it the Westminster model, to the extent that you know the proceedings are called Hansard, the, um, the benches are green in the lower house, red leather in the upper house, um, and there's a, there's a kind of left-right split, there's a, it's a Liberal Party, but that's effectively, the, they are the Tories, and a Labour Party. So some, some of the different, some of the kind of the structures of UK politics map over really, really well. And the, historically, a, a lot of the founding members, particularly the Labour Party and the trade unions and the Australian uh, Australian labour movement were English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh activists. So uh, a lot of people you meet um, on both sides um, will say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I've got family from Scotland, I've got family... Indeed, your boss, Julie Gillard, back. born in Wales, the well, only Prime no, Minister to have been born in Wales. <laughs> she, was born, no, she was born in Barry, and she had a tubercular kind of chest and they went to the doctors and the doctor said, look, um, I think your daughter needs to live in a warmer climate. And he meant Torquay, but um, her, her <laughs> mum and dad took her to Adelaide. And why do you think Australian advisers are so attractive to to British politicians, particularly the Tories? Look, I think there's one thing uh, which we should be clear about, which is that we're not very good at languages in the UK, so mm. actually there are some really good French and um, uh, German strategists, but unless you're English-speaking, we won't listen to you. Um, and the Americans got a high, uh, high status over here, but American politics is very, very different, not just that the, each state is almost like a different country, but the, the American political uh, framework doesn't really wrap over. So I think it is, there's familial links, there's the language, uh, there's the cultural links. And look, there's one thing about Australian politician advisors is, uh, and British ones too, there's a regular route of meeting, which is um, the test circuit. Yes. You'll often find um, Australian uh, politicians on parliamentary visits or ministerial visits just around the time of test matches. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, that's actually the first time I met Albo, the current um, Prime Minister. He was an opposition MP uh, and he was over on a parliamentary uh, trip around the time of a test match. Really? Yeah. I'll let you be immodest for a second, John. What, what do you think Julia Gillard saw in you? What do you think she wanted? Uh, somebody, uh, what they said was, uh, somebody who can take the fight to the other side. Mm. Um, somebody who will pick up a sword, run over the hill, and expect everybody to follow after them. And so it was that kind of it was the it was the edge of British politics that they saw in the Blair machine, the New Labour machine, the willingness to take the fight, the, you know, the thing that Alistair brought into uh, in, into government, and that that, that we all learned from him. Uh, it's interesting because now I think we would say the opposite: that British politicians look at Australia and see a more combative pugnacious, some would say coarse political culture that they could learn from. Maybe not true of Anthony Albanese, but certainly true on the on the right. Um, 
Look, the, the what I experienced, what we experienced with Julia was the rise, the the rise of populism, the global rise of populists like Trump, uh, like Johnson, like Farage. It was really started by Tony Abbott in Australia. He made the carbon uh, tax uh, the centre of his campaign. He made uh, the fight over woke issues. He made fight fight over universities. You know, he had one of his ministers went into the House of Representatives, held up a lump of coal, and accused Labour of hating coal. I mean, there's something quite visceral about the politics around the culture wars, around the anti-work stuff. Uh, An Australian political discourse is much more rambunctious in the House, House of Representatives. I mean, it's it's more like a barroom brawl than than, than, than the parliamentary questions, you know, normal ones. Um, And Keir Starmer is looking to Anthony Albanese. Some people say, look, they're not... They're two not terribly prepossessing blokes, uh, you know, not to be not to be pejorative, but you know, no one would say they are at the very top of the charisma stakes in their respective parties. But they sort of similar dispositions. Yeah, They've been on the of, left, yeah, indeed, come from the left into a party where with a very strong right wing tradition as well uh, to sort of you know, and where Labour doesn't win very often. Indeed, indeed. Uh, do you see? You know, a conscious imitation there. Uh, I see. A, I see. There's a, there's a global move, in my view, to um, slightly dull men with a plan. Mm. Uh, Schultz in Germany, Chancellor Schultz of the SPD, Biden in America, Albo in in Australia, Keir too. And there, there's also one thing that Albo did really well uh, in his campaign was at the end of the campaign, everybody knew he grew up in social housing. He grew up, he was brought up by um, uh, a single mum uh, and they knew his favourite rugby team was the Rabbitohs. So that he got three he got three things across. And you know, you can map that to Keir, can't you? you know, he, lo- he loves his mum, he loves the NHS because mum worked in the NHS. You know, she served it, then it, ser- then, uh, then it served her. And he loves Arsenal. I mean, he's got exactly the same thing. If you, I mean, in my view, I've always, I, I, I always advise Keir, if you go around the country playing five-a-side football everywhere you go, you will get to know so many people. Go to, go to the bar after us for a drink. People get to know the real Keir. Mm. They'll get a sense of him. And, and Albert got that across. He got across, look, this is who I am. Uh, do you want me? And yes, actually, he's been a very, very stable... And you heard James McGrath being a bit annoyed about how well Labour did. But look, <laughs> he's, been a, he's been a stable, good Prime Minister governing well in the, in the national interest. And even as a Republican, you know came to the coronation like he he knows how to play his part and i think one of the things about the move away from populism is people want a leader who they can trust in public uh on the global stage and so i think Keir can lean into that too that sort of yeah yeah we, we've had flashy we've had populist but why not let's have calm for a bit because things are a bit rough out there mm. and australia australia show you the way to labor party in that respect lots of uh Australian Labour Party politicians flying in and out on Zooms, giving their advice. John McTernan, former political secretary to Tony Blair and communications director to former Australian Prime Minister Judy Gillard. Thanks very much for sharing that insight with us. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Well, the Aussie influence in Britain, of course, cuts much deeper than discussions in Westminster's, what used to be Westminster's smoke-filled rooms. You'd be hard-pressed to find a British person who hasn't watched at least one episode of this. Everybody needs good neighbours With a little understanding You can find the perfect plan Or Someone Listeners of a certain age will enjoy this one Somebody's had a boogie to this Uh, 
have to say the Stock Aitken Waterman uh, bit of Kylie's oeuvre is by far the best. I would have chosen Got To Be Certain personally, but there you go. Can't have everything on this show. Well, here to explain Australia's cultural impact on British, Britain's shores is Cathy Lett, Australian British author and comedy writer. Hello, Cathy. Hello. Oh, good day, I should say. Good day. Good day, I should say. Yeah, you know, I uh, my parents met in Australia. My brother lived in Australia. And indeed, my sister does. So I should I should know better. Um, You're a closet Aussie. A closet. I'm a closet. I'm a closet Aussie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hence my close interest in the politi- in the politics of both countries. Um, yeah. So let's uh, let's look a bit deeper than politics because, as John McTurnan was saying, the cultural overlap between our two countries does in part explain why there's so much political crossover too. Um, Mm -hmm. But when you look at British culture now with your unique vantage point, how do you you think the Aussies Aussies are doing? Are they punching their weight? Are they having a greater impact on British culture now than in days gone by? Well, it's definitely changed. I mean, when I came here in the late 80s, I mean, the Brits saw us as a, as a recessive gene, the kind of Irish of the Pacific. And it took me a while to work that out because at the time, you Brits didn't speak English. You spoke euphemism. So, you know, when they'd say to me, oh, you Australians, so refreshing. I thought that meant they really liked me. <laughs> I didn't know it meant rack off, you loudmouth colonial nymphomaniac. You know? <laughs> and, and I'm like, how dare you call me a loudmouth? Please, I have my standards. <laughs> Um, and there was definitely a kind of condescension chromosome when it came to Australians. I mean, I looked up so many noses, even people shorter than me. They'd hear the accent and the head would be thrown back and the nostrils would kind of flare. Um, but I, the way I'd get back at them, whenever they'd, they'd be really condescending about my, you know, about my kind of, uh, about our sort of uh, penal roots, I used to tell them what my grandma told me because when I told her I was moving to Britain, she's like, oh, Kath. You can't possibly move to London. That's where all those terrible convicts come from. (laughs) (laughs) And they had absolutely no retort, you know. But since then, um, we've had our way with you, you know, starting with Neighbours and Kylie. And if you you look at, you know, our incredible cultural exports to Britain Mm. from Jermaine Greer, Clive James, Barry Humphreys, you know, and now Deborah Francis White, you know, the Guilty Feminist podcaster with over a million hits. A hundred million hits she's had. Kylie Minogue, Kate Blanchett, Nick Cave. All these clever, impudent, sort of mischievous, irreverent, rule-breaking, original, and, I, and kind of anarchic people have come here. And, and why I think they've succeeded is, you know, I couldn't believe when I first came to Britain, people would say, oh, it's not, you can't do that. It's not the dumb thing. And I'd say, but once I do it, it's done. And then it is a dumb thing. So we just have that way of breaking rules, which um, I think is what's cut through. Do you think the relationship is changing and the idea of Britain as a sort of destination or the mother country is changing as Australia Mm. changes and diversifies and obviously there's a steady stream of British and indeed Irish migration to Australia, but Australia Mm -hmm. is looks different it's it's more diverse it's multi-ethnic you know Mm -hmm. much more conscious of its relationship with the uh, with the Pacific um do you think that is changing the nature of Australian influence on Britain yeah I mean Australia is is the world's biggest human minestrone the most multicultural place on earth one in three Australians was born overseas and you know our young Aussies what do they what allegiance do they have to a kind of castle encrusted you know, monarch, monarch-riven place 10,000 miles away. So I don't think there's that pull anymore to the mother country. Mm. But we do have that, um, 
we still are, you know, we're still part of, we, we still have, have you as our head of state. The Queen is our head of state. So until we become a republic, there, there will be this, there still will be a pull. Um, and, you know, there's many things to love about Britain. Oh, my God, you know, you conquer the great indoors, the incredible galleries and theatres and museums. Um, you know, the fact that you're so witty when you go to a dinner party here, it's like the Wimbledon of wit with one <laughs> line is kind of bantering back and forth. And we do share that mental um, geography of, of, you know, the goons and Monty Python mm. and Jane Austen and Dickens and all of that. So we will definitely always be cousins, but we won't, we hope not to have that maternal, paternal link to you. Yeah, indeed. And lots of us here have spent the past month or so watching uh, Colin from Accounts, uh, which is a great Australian <laughs> comedy. Uh, speaking, speaking of which, uh, it's been announced that there's going to be an Australian version of The Office. We've been talking about Aust- uh, bl- British political remakes of Australian politicians. Uh, now Australia's returning the favour. Felicity Ward is going to be Australia's version of David Brent. Are you looking forward yeah. to that? Do you think that'll be successful? Oh, totally. I mean, it's such a clever idea to invert the sex, the, make it make it a, a woman running the running the office now. You know, blow and blow raspberries at, at my own kind for a while. Um, and I guess I guess what will be wonderful about it too is that is that Australians have a one a great sense of um, humour and optimism. I think one of the big differences between us is that the, we don't think optimism is an eye disease. Whereas in England, you have this kind of Eeyore gene. And I think one of the reasons you are so miserable is that you can't believe you sent the convicts out there to be punished in all that lovely warm sunshine, you know, while you stayed here in the rain. And I think, you know, Australian language is just like English, except there are fewer words for, what would you say, rain, sleet, frostbite, you know, numb bums. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we do share this fantastic sense of humour. So um, I think I think you'll... We'll, 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 we'll both both places will get a big kick out of the female version the early female version of The Office yeah that's all we got time for on today's Red Box podcast remember to like share subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast from and I'll be back tomorrow This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.